As we've been discovering over the course of this week, the Noble Eightfold Path is a very holistic set of factors that we can cultivate in daily life and on retreat. And here on retreat, we have the opportunity to really develop the last three factors, the meditative factors of right effort, right mindfulness, and right concentration keeping in mind that all of this cultivation is done in the service of nibbana, of awakening or freedom. And it's possible that when we hear words like nibbana or even freedom, that they can sound very abstract or remote or unattainable in some way. But as I've been trying to point out, if we really pay attention we can start to notice moments throughout the day when the heart and mind are at least temporarily free of harmful energies, free of the hindrances. And this is part of the training that is included under the fourth foundation of mindfulness. So, Sorry, under the third foundation, mindfulness of mind states, when we are noticing is lust present or absent. Is hatred present or absent? And so on. So this understanding um, is built into the progression of the Satipatthana Sutta. And we've mostly been working with the first three foundations, which are mindfulness of the body, mindfulness of feeling tone, and mindfulness of mind. And tonight I'd like to touch in a little more to the fourth foundation of mindfulness, which is mindfulness of dhammas. And this word dhamma is usually left untranslated because it's yet another of those Pali words that has a huge range of meanings. So just a few of them. When dhammas has a capital D, it usually refers to the Buddha's teachings. And that is one aspect of what's included in this fourth foundation. So for example, we find mindfulness of the four noble truths. And then when dharma has a small d, it can mean uh, things like phenomena or experiences or mental categories. So in this context, sometimes mindfulness of dhammas is translated as principles or mental phenomena or categories of experience or mental qualities, which perhaps doesn't make it any clearer. So basically this fourth foundation includes a whole series of numbered lists. So lists within lists within lists. Uh, that's partly why I gave you the handout to try and help you get a little bit of, um, of a hold, a handle on all of this. So in this fourth foundation, the lists include, are you ready? <laughs> the five hindrances which we've already uh, touched into. The five aggregates of clinging. The six sense bases. The seven factors of awakening, which I'm going to go into in a little more detail soon. And then lastly, as I mentioned, the four noble truths. And the Four Noble Truths includes the Noble Eightfold Path, so we come full circle here. So as I've been saying, these teachings are really like fractal geometry, and it doesn't matter where we start, we find ourselves uh, 
walking similar terrain. So last night, I just touched in briefly to the five hindrances and the seven factors of awakening for a context. And I chose those two partly because, according to Bhikkhu Analio, of all the lists in this fourth foundation of mindfulness, these two sets are what were included in the earliest versions of that sutta. And it seems that some of the other lists were added later. And perhaps these two were included because they have a very immediate and profound effect on our meditation practice, for good or for bad. So as we've been seeing, the meditation practice is learning how to recognize the hindrances, how to release them, how to abandon them. And on the other side of the scale, how to recognize the seven factors of awakening and how to cultivate them and bring them to their full development. So I'd just like to highlight again that point that there's a shift of of relationship in the fourth foundation of mindfulness. It's different from the first three. So in the first three foundations, the refrain is to just be with our experience exactly as it is. So knowing the body in the body, knowing feeling tones as feeling tones, knowing the mind as the mind. Just know, for example, as I said earlier, is there lust or greed in the mind or not? That's all, just to know that. But when we come to the fourth foundation, right effort, as I was showing last night, is it's not enough now to just know there's lust. We're invited to do something about it. So lust or greed is one of the hindrances. Okay, recognize a hindrance. How does it get abandoned? How do I release it so that there's room for the skillful states of the awakening factors to arise instead? So remembering the hindrances are sensual desire, aversion, sloth and torpor, restlessness and worry, and skeptical doubt. Those are the five. And then the seven Awakening factors, the good guys, are mindfulness, investigation, energy, joy, tranquility, concentration, and equanimity. And again, you'll see that there's some overlap there, so mindfulness is included, and equanimity is also included, which is one of the Brahmaviharas. So the significance of these seven qualities, what makes them awakening factors, is that when they are all well-developed and perfectly in balance with each other, this provides the optimum conditions in the mind for the deepest insights to arise. So using the template of the awakening factors, we can bring awareness very directly to the qualities of heart and mind that support awakening, freedom. And yet, for various reasons, usually on retreat, we tend to hear much more about the qualities of heart and mind that get in the way of freedom. So we hear a lot, at least in my experience, we hear a lot about the hindrances and the defilements and the afflictive states and the root poisons and on and on and on. And because of this emphasis, we can develop the, the misunderstanding that we're going to have to spend decades slogging through all of our painful mind states before we get even a moment of relief. 
So tonight I wanted to explore a little bit the seven factors of awakening, just to try to redress that imbalance of emphasis and hopefully um, help us to start recognizing that these are qualities, again, that we can train and that we can develop. And we don't have to spend decades in a cave in the Himalayas somewhere before the awakening factors suddenly and mystically appear. I'm trying to uh, make the point that they're accessible even in the context of a retreat like this, at least in moments. So in some ways it's not surprising that there's this uh, imbalance in the practice because of the negativity bias that I keep referring to. And we can see this... um, we can see this playing out in many different ways and that's again why I like to uh, bring in the teaching from Ajahn Buddhadasa that I quoted a few nights ago where he talked about temporary Nibbana if you remember that where he said if defilements were with us day and night without ceasing who could ever stand them? Living things would either die or become insane first and then die One survives because there are periods when the fires of defilements do not burn. Periodical or temporary nirvana keeps all of us alive and well, and it's a nourishing condition, normal to life. Fortunately, it is our instinct to acquire this. Whatever has any heart and mind will look for periods when the defilements or strong desires are absent. Whenever it happens... A little nirvana always comes in, and the phenomenon will continue until one learns how to convert it into permanent or complete nirvana. So again, we have this sense of progress from these initial, maybe very fleeting, very faint moments, but the more we keep learning how to recognize these over time, they start to become more and more the default setting of our minds. And in fact, all of the different techniques that are laid out in the Satipatthana Sutta are all uh, cultivated as a means to developing these awakening factors. So I'm going to run through the list again very briefly just to show how we can use it as a template in our own practice from time to time to notice if they're present or if they're absent. And even though we don't yet know them in detail, just knowing what the seven are and just running through them as a checklist can sometimes um, reveal some useful information. So even right now, we think of the first one, mindfulness. We can ask ourselves, is mindfulness present right now or not? And it's an easy one because just asking the question right there there's mindfulness. So that's an easy first first success. And then the second one, which is investigation. Again, just asking the question, is there investigation present or not? You're asking a question, so yes. So that's two out of seven, just like that. So this isn't perhaps as hard as we might imagine. The third factor of energy, we can just look. How is the energy right now? Is there too much? Is there not enough? 
Am I sinking into dullness, into sloth and torpor? Or am I revved up into restlessness and worry? We can start to learn what does balanced energy feel like? And then the fourth factor of joy. What about joy? Can I find some trace of joy in this experience right now? Or am I sitting here with slightly clenched teeth waiting for the talk to be over so I can go to bed? So if joy is a stretch, sometimes for some people the word joy is a little intimidating. We can think simply in terms of appreciation or gratitude. Is there something about my experience right now that I can appreciate to again begin to incline the heart and mind in that general direction? And then the fifth factor of tranquility, tranquility or calm, serenity. How much of that is present right now? I've been emphasizing it in some of the guided meditations, so just to begin to familiarize ourselves with that quality when the mind starts to just uh, settle down. Because this tranquility leads into the sixth factor of concentration, which, as I've been saying, is better translated as non-distractability. So we can just check, is the mind now focused, stable, undistracted, or not? And then lastly, equanimity in this context is very stable, balanced evenness of mind. It's not pulling into even the slightest trace of wanting or being pushed into the slightest trace of not wanting, but very stable and balanced in the middle. So that's a very brief, very brief overview of these seven factors. And when we run through the checklist like that, we might find that uh, one or two are present, or many are present, but in varying degrees of strength. And even this is useful information, because the first step in cultivating these factors is learning how to recognize how they feel in the body and the heart and the mind. And when we recognize that the awakening factors are not present, we also need to know what to do about it, how to set up the conditions that help them to arise. And in the suttas it's said that just as a river inclines and flows towards the ocean, so the awakening factors incline and flow towards liberation, towards freedom. So in the list I just read, you might have noticed that many of those qualities were familiar. Mindfulness, of course, is also included as the path factor of right mindfulness. An investigation is the quality we've been practicing whenever you remember to drop in those three questions. What's happening in the body? What's happening in the heart-mind? How am I relating to this experience? That's one very straightforward way of practicing this awakening factor of investigation. Energy is an aspect of right effort, which I talked about in some detail last night. 
tranquility is an aspect of calm, which again I've been offering in some of the guided meditations as a support for concentration or unification of mind, which is itself also a factor of the Noble Eightfold Path in the form of right concentration. And then equanimity, as I said earlier, is also one of the four Brahma-Vihara practices which I'll try to uh, find time for us to explore a bit before the end of the retreat. So I just named six of the seven. Did anybody notice which one I missed out? Joy. Very good, yes. So that factor, joy, in my own experience, is the one that usually gets the least exploration of any of the awakening factors. So tonight I'd like to spend a little bit more time exploring what it is. The Pali word is piti, spelled P-I-T-I. The first I is long, so it sounds like piti. And sometimes when I read transcripts of Dharma talks, it's written as the initials P and T, like physical therapy or something. So anyway, piti is P-I-T-I. And this uh, is sometimes also translated as rapture. This is how Joseph Goldstein describes it. He says, This word piti has been translated in many ways, including rapture, happiness, joy, delight, and pleasurable interest. Reflect for a moment on your felt sense of what these words suggest. Piti has the function of refreshing and delighting the mind and the body like a cool breeze on a hot day. Because rapture directly opposes ill will and is incompatible with it, when the mind is filled with pity, there's no room for anger or ill will to arise. So pity can be a quite intensely pleasant experience which refreshes and delights the body and mind. And in the context of a meditation retreat, it can show up as different degrees of intensity, sometimes with quite mild and momentary pleasant sensations in the body. Sometimes these gradually become more suffused throughout the whole body and more sustained over time, too. But for most people, it takes uh, some time for these kinds of uh, experiences of rapture to develop. Often it takes longer than a, a one-week retreat because of this, uh, you know, the, coming back to the analogy of the jar of muddy pond water, there's just an organic settling and stilling that has to happen. And depending on the agitation of people's outside lives, it takes more or less time for that process to, to happen. So if you're not recognizing some of these descriptions, then... Totally don't worry. I'm just giving you information, maybe useful for future reference, and just to get a sense of how the practice might unfold. And perhaps the idea of it sounds good, but it may seem very far from our own experience. And it might even uh, make us feel quite discouraged. So when we hear sometimes about pity or joy, it can even bring up the opposite mind states of anger and ill will or perhaps doubt. 
But the good news is that we can use our understanding of the sequence of how these seven factors of awakening develop to our advantage because they each have an interrelationship. And when we're clear about the relationship between these factors, we know how to support and strengthen each of them in turn so that they naturally flow into and uh, lead to each other. So we start with mindfulness, and when we're seeing clearly, often there's this natural sense of investigation, of interest. And this interest raises the energy in the body, in the heart, and the mind. And when there's more energy, it shades over into this subtle rapture or joy. And then when joy calms down, it shades into tranquility, and that calmness of mind stabilizes into concentration, which then refines into equanimity. So there's a natural relationship between all of these, um, almost like a thermal updraft. So if we can catch the beginning of the chain reaction, it becomes more and more effortless as these factors start to flow into and support each other. So energy is the support for joy. And we can check the feedback loop in the other way too. So if we notice that there's a lack of joy in the practice, we might want to investigate how are we practicing? How are we applying our energy? If we're bringing a lot of effort to the practice, but it's become co-opted by a sense of striving for spiritual attainment, then often it (coughs) brings in the hindrances with it. So we find ourselves caught in greed or aversion, for example, and these get in the way of the development of joy. So we need to notice, is there joy present or not? And if not, it might be a a sign that we need to loosen up a bit and to check what's happening with our energy. Because paradoxically, what is required for joy to arise is actually the letting go of control. So just as we can't force ourselves to relax, we can't force this factor of joy to come into play. All we can do is set up the right conditions and then settle back have patience and trust that at some point the joy will quite naturally arise. So the right conditions for joy to arise are these first three factors of awakening. And this is how Joseph Goldstein describes the relationship between them. And here he's translating joy as rapture. So he says, through mindfulness and investigation, we begin to see and realize for ourselves what are skillful mind states and what are not. Now we are no longer working from book knowledge, but rather the wisdom of our own experience. As a result of this investigation and understanding, the enlightenment factors of energy and rapture naturally flow. Having seen clearly what is wholesome and what is not, we're motivated to arouse the energy, the strength and the courage to develop the unskillful, sorry, to develop the skillful and abandon the unskillful. Then an enlightenment factor of rapture 
is born from the freedom from remorse that comes from practicing the precepts of non-harming and the increasing momentum of awareness that comes from sustained, balanced energy. Rapture is that quality of intense interest and it arises from a close and caring attention to whatever is arising. In the manuals of Buddhism, Lady Sayadaw, the great Burmese meditation master and scholar, wrote, Rapture is the joy and happiness that appears when the power of seeing and knowing increases. So there's that sense of inspiration. When we practice ethical conduct, we're free from remorse, the mind becomes clear, we see with insight, and there's this sense of um, interest and inspiration. And having said that, for many of us, thinking in terms of joy can be quite a challenge because it brings up some of our deeply rooted and most unconscious assumptions about ourselves, our experience, and the practice itself. So again, this negativity bias that I keep mentioning, we tend to be much more tuned into our unpleasant experiences because they might be threatening in some way. And conversely, we tend to skip over pleasant experiences because they don't pose any threat. So we unconsciously censor out those experiences that don't fit our expectations about what's supposed to be happening. But if we pay closer attention, we might uh, notice that there is much more pleasant experience happening than we might have assumed. And if these pleasant experiences are related to skillfully, they can be a very useful resource in our practice. So earlier I mentioned the story of the Buddha's awakening and how the turning point came when he had that memory of the pleasant experience of being a young child sitting in the cool shade of a rose apple tree and spontaneously slipping into a state of deep concentration. And as an adult, it was that memory of the pleasant mental experience that led him to revise, to let go of his hardcore asceticism and come back to the middle way, which not long after led to his full liberation. So I've been um, offering, at least at times, as a skillful means when the mind is feeling tight or withered or contracted, to consciously open up to more aspects of our experience and to notice pleasant feeling tone, not to reinforce grasping or greed, but to help the mind come back to balance when we've got unbalanced in some way. And again, this... um, Consciously opening up to what's pleasant can help counteract the tendency that some of us have to censor out those aspects of experience. So quite often on retreat, I've worked with people, particularly in longer retreats, and they'll come in for individual meetings and say something like, the last 24 hours have been sheer, unremitting hell. Interesting. 24 hours, huh? 
And then when we sit down and inquire together, and they'll say, well, apart from that cup of tea I had after breakfast, I remember watching the steam coming off that, and there was a little bit of a rainbow when it was catching the light. And Yeah, that was pleasant. But apart from that, it's been sheer unremitting help. But actually then after that, I remember feeding the little birds. There were some sunflower seeds and these little birds came down and pecked them and they were so pretty and it was quite amazing. But everything else was sheer unremitting hell. And so we can see, I mean, it's sort of humorous but also a bit sad. We might catch this in our own minds, the way we filter out and tell ourselves stories about our experience that are actually not that accurate And again, this is not to judge ourselves, but just to understand the conditioning that it can come from. So I've seen this in myself. I sometimes have shared the example of the first 10-day retreat I went on. And after, no, it wasn't the first, it was the second. Still, it was early on in my practice. And after a few days, there was a phase of quite strong bliss. Um, It's like, surprised. And there was that thought, yes, now I've got it. This is how it's going to be for the rest of the retreat. And I can see some of you know (laughs) where the story ended because I think it was the very next sitting that everything, quote, fell apart and my mind was like barbed wire. And I heard myself think, I knew it, back to reality. And then I realized oh, what I'm calling reality is barbed wire mind and bliss, so all that, that's not reality. So again, there's this selective bias in our experience to value and give more weight to some aspects of experience than others. So just to be on the lookout for that, that famous aphorism from Rick Hansen that our brains are like Velcro for the unpleasant and Teflon for the pleasant. And as if that wasn't enough, on top of that, we often add to this biological basis a whole pile of social and cultural conditioning that reinforces it. So at least that was true for me when I started to um, pay attention in my own practice, this underlying sense that the spiritual path was supposed to be unpleasant. Because if I was actually enjoying something, then it couldn't be spiritual. And it's possible this came from my uh, Christian heritage, this uh, unconscious and distorted belief that equates any kind of enjoyment with sin. And so I had this uh, unseen assumption that it was somehow noble to suffer. And we hear about the noble truth and we hear about suffering. And so if my meditation was painful and uncomfortable or disturbing, then I was doing the real work. Or on the other hand, if my experiences were neutral or actually pleasant, then I must be doing something wrong. I obviously wasn't working hard enough or going deep enough or not seeing clearly enough. And it's true that the Buddha warned us over and over to not get attached to physical sense pleasures. But in my own case, I what I hadn't seen was that I was actually so afraid of getting attached to any kind of enjoyment that I wasn't allowing myself to feel any pleasure at all. And what I wasn't seeing was that this was actually a form of wrong view, that I was um, 
attached to non-attachment, you could say, which is not healthy. It's a, a kind of a fear. And when we have that in place, it's very hard to sustain momentum because there's no positive feedback loop. There's no, uh, there's no reward. And usually after some time, we lose momentum completely. So if you do notice that your practice is stalling, getting stuck in some way, you might want to just check and see, is there some kind of underlying attitude in the ways that I've been describing that might be getting in the way? And if you do notice this, just to remember too that the Buddha himself had to go through these phases of hardcore asceticism before he realized actually I need to become more balanced and find this middle way. So coming back to joy as an awakening factor, in the beginning it might be feel quite weak or just a kind of a bud or a kind of potential. And one of the ways to strengthen it is to set up supportive conditions for it to arise. So on the one hand, we do that by trying to reduce the negativity bias in the mind, by noticing more of our pleasant meditative experiences and developing a healthy relationship to them, which means not dismissing or ignoring them, but also not getting attached to them and inadvertently feeding the hindrance of greed And again, we need to refine the awakening factor of investigation to help us see if we are getting uh, unbalanced in some way. But with practice, this gets easier. So on the one hand, we need to diminish the presence of aversion or ill will in the mind, and on the other, to support the conditions that lead to joy. So remembering the quote from Joseph where he says rapture directly opposes ill will and is incompatible with it because when the mind is filled with pity there's no room for anger or ill will to arise. So we can work in both directions here. We can cultivate pity to help reduce anger and aversion and we can cultivate the antidotes to anger and aversion so that pity has more room to develop. And these antidotes are the first two of the Brahma-Vihara practices of kindness and compassion. Because it makes sense that if we're able to encourage kindness and compassion to become more the default settings of the mind, it's much easier for joy to arise spontaneously. And this is the refrain from the Satipatthana Sutta, which is repeated for each of the seven factors of awakening. If the joy awakening factor is present in one, one knows there is the joy awakening factor in me. If the joy awakening factor is not present in one, one knows there is no joy awakening factor in me. One knows how the unarisen joy awakening factor can arise and how the arisen joy awakening factor can be perfected by development. So we see this very similar pattern as with the other skillful states, letting uh, and as within the four great efforts that I mentioned the other night. So releasing what's not helpful, helping to arise what is helpful, and then sustaining it, developing it, cultivating it.
So just uh, a few words about how uh, sometimes when joy has arisen, the trick, and it can be quite a balance, uh, is how to maintain it and to keep developing it without getting attached to it. Because of the truth of impermanence, this rapture inevitably fades at some point. And if we experience any sense of loss or suffering, we might recognize, oh, there was some attachment there. And sometimes we need to go through these cycles of clinging and loss a few times before we learn how to let go and find that more balanced um, equanimity even towards joy. And for me, it's been very helpful in my own practice to recognize to hear one teacher talk about the practice in terms of cycles of purity and purification. And this is the understanding that the practice naturally goes through cycles or rhythms. And the purification stage is when we have to deal with challenges of various kinds, usually the hindrances. And then at some point uh, after we've worked with them, with some degree of skillfulness, at some point the hindrances release and then we experience the purity cycle of the practice where there's some more ease, some relief, some calm, perhaps more concentration in the mind, perhaps some new sense of understanding or insight, perhaps even some moments of rapture So this is the purity stage, and this is where we usually tend to think, ah, now finally I've got it. And like I did in the example earlier, this is how it's going to be for the rest of the retreat. But as you all know, it doesn't always work out like that. And one teacher said, there's nothing that ruins the rest of your retreat quite so much as having a good sitting. (laughs) You can see that sense of how it sets up expectations Mm -hmm. and those expectations crystallize and harden into this is how it's supposed to be. Oh no, it's going away. Come back. Where did you go? What did I do wrong? And so on and so on. So then we're back in the purification phase because the next... uh, kind of detritus has come bubbling up through the sediment to create the murk. We have to settle it back down again with some clarity. So if we notice these cycles playing out, it's not that we're doing something wrong, it's actually the power of the practice. (coughs) And again, this image of making a bigger container can be helpful here, so that rather than holding on and going with the pendulum swings from purity to purification, getting disoriented or discouraged, we make space. Okay, I'm in the purification phase now. Oh, okay, here's the purity phase. Okay, right, here we are, purification again. And so there's this capacity to maintain some balance even as the practice is going th- doing its thing. So this joy can lead into tranquility if we don't get caught, if we're able to allow it to come and go, the mind can become tranquil, which settles into concentration, which stabilizes into equanimity. And strong, stable equanimity is in some ways what I think of as the jumping off point. It's the 
it's from the heart mind that is completely unwavering, unaffected by the faintest traces of wanting and not wanting, that the deepest insights can arise. So may we all experience these increasingly refined levels of joy, which support all of the awakening factors to come into balance in the service of the deepest freedom of heart and mind. Thank you for your attention. Thank you for listening. To learn how you can support the teachers and Dharma Seed, please visit dharmaseed.org slash donate.